Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Just before we get to this great episode, I want to extend a special offer to you as a Meet Me in the Kitchen listener. Little Kitchen Academy wants every child to experience what changing lives from scratch really means. So as a special gift to our listeners, you can currently save $25 off enrollment at any Little Kitchen Academy location. Just use the code in the kitchen at checkout and you'll instantly save $25 off enrollment at any LKA location. Again, the promo code to use is in the kitchen. It will only be available for a limited time, so be sure to enroll your child today. So across the spectrum of junior kindergarten all the way to grade 12 at our school, I see so many places where what Little Kitchen can offer to our students through the lens of an educator as being absolutely optimal. And I 100% am on board with the overall philosophy of parents stay out, the kids have got this, and the building of confidence that that creates for kids. And I think this is the thing that really is the unique aspect of Little Kitchen Academy, understanding food literacy and making it fun. And when I see the images on social media of kids experiencing joy in a learning environment, it just thrills me. You're there to help the students learn, but the one thing is they also help you learn and you learn new things about yourself. So yeah, the students definitely have a big part in helping you grow as a person. You know how we talk about how, you know, a very special teacher can make all the difference? This is the same type of thing. An experience like this, where it's something that's out of their comfort zone with cooking, with nutrition, with selecting foods, with having the agency to make your own choices, to not just be told to do something, but to have someone come alongside you and support you in doing that and do it in such a way that you feel empowered. That is an incredible, incredible thing to give to a child at any age. A good kitchen produces good food. But a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy and supported by Birkenstock, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. It's that time of year where children are heading back to school, teachers are back in the classroom, and families are trying to get back into some kind of routine. As you probably already know, Little Kitchen Academy is an incredible learning environment where the education extends far beyond cooking. And a lot of that has to do with the incredible community of people who contribute to changing lives from scratch. The timing seems perfect to showcase a number of those people and their perspectives in a back-to-school edition of Meet Me in the Kitchen. Each one of the guests you're about to hear from has a full-length episode that can be found when you scroll through the Meet Me in the Kitchen library, so be sure to give them a listen if you haven't done so already. We'll kick things off with Charlie Anthony who was featured in episode 12 and was among the first group of students at the original Little Kitchen Academy. Charlie has since become an instructor at LKA and has enjoyed the experience so much that it emboldened his decision to embark on a career in teaching. To be fully honest, even when I was in Little Kitchen as just a, as a student in those late night teen classes, I hadn't even had teaching in my mind yet. Back then I was focused on a different path and it took a couple more experiences for me to realize that teaching was, was the thing for me. And as soon as that clicked, 
and I heard that Little Kitchen is doing so well, and I've had conversations with Felicity about potentially becoming a, a an instructor down there. It just made me think about the teen nights and how and how that went, and how great the atmosphere in, in there was, and how nice the instructors were. And I wanted to experience more of that. And I thought, what's better than joining Little Kitchen as an instructor and and being able to work there and spend a lot more time with students, with other instructors, and and all that. What you just described a minute ago, not sure what you wanted to do, thinking you were going to do one thing and then transitioning to another, is something I think most people go through, not only in their teenage years, but in their 20s, their 30s, maybe even later in life. So what was it about teaching? What was the light bulb that went on for you that made you decide, Charlie, you know what, this is something I actually want to pursue? So I've been around teaching all my life, obviously, having both my parents teach and have both my parents teach at the school I attended. But back in my grade 11 year, I was able to travel down to the Dominican Republic and take part in a service trip where I was able to teach kids down there, mostly from in, in the elementary age, English. And I was so excited heading down there and, and leaving that, it just clicked in my mind. I'm like, oh, wow, I love this. I want to do this. This is for me. I want to become a teacher. I want to follow the path my parents took. So is it because of the relationships that you've established with the children you've had the opportunity to teach? Is it just knowing that you can influence somebody's life in a positive manner? What is it about it, Charlie, that fuels your passion? You know, being in the classroom, especially down on that particular service trip, it was truly something else when you when you look at the student's face after you've taught them soccer ball or, or baseball bat and, and they get it right and their face lights up and they know something new and you know they're going to head back home and tell their parents, oh, I learned this today, I learned soccer ball, I learned, I learned soccer field, and that's it's truly priceless. I, I love that. You've had the benefit of learning in the classroom environment, but also in the Little Kitchen environment as well. I'm wondering what you've learned as a teacher at Little Kitchen Academy that you believe you can transfer into school classrooms. Patience. Patience is a big one. Cooking is different than math. But it's the same principles, you know. It's, it's something new for everyone. Some students won't find cooking as easy. Some people won't find math as easy. And I found throughout my time at Little Kitchen that patience is key. And when students don't understand, you just got to change the way you're saying things. Change the approach you're taking to, to teaching them and, and showing them the next steps. And I definitely find that an important key aspect of teaching in the classroom. Well, and I'm wondering, as you talk about math specifically, a lot of people listening will say, oh, geez, math, that was tough for me, but it was always taught one way. And if you didn't get that way, a lot of people maybe shied away from math or said, math isn't for me. But when you combine what Little Kitchen tries to do with their methods, it's okay, you might have a student come in who doesn't like this particular ingredient or thinks he or she doesn't like this particular ingredient, but there is a way to show that child that it can be fun and it can be interesting and it might be something you warm to. Is that something you believe you can carry over into the classroom? 100%. Especially with my past in math, I've had you know teachers where they teach you how to answer this question a certain way, a certain method, but you happen to have, let's say, a tutor who taught you their own method that they've grown up with. And they've they've said, oh, you know, I don't want you to do it this way. I want you to do it the way I taught you. And yeah, like you said, that can definitely make people shy away from math and turn away from it. And yes, at Little Kitchen, there's so many different ways we can get students to enjoy things like 
a student who doesn't like to eat mushrooms and we have mushroom toppings on our pizza, wouldn't like to eat it. And we're like, you know, you don't have to eat it. You can just try it. And then as, as it goes on, you know, the food smells amazing. Other students beside them are eating mushrooms, which makes them a little curious. So then they end up eating mushrooms. And in the end, we're all happy. And, you know, yeah, many different ways, many different ways to approach uh, learning experiences. When you made the transition from student into teacher, what was that experience like? And what have you been able to get out of it and perhaps see how you've grown along the way? So as most do when they start a little kitchen, you will, there's three spots, three instructors. There's the one who helps around, cleans up dishes. There's one that walks around the kitchen and provides support and for both the students and the number one instructor who who leads it all. And yeah, as I started, you know, I started off as the number two and three, you know, had to work my way in there and was always nervous. I was always very nervous of being in the front of the class, being the, the, the one that everyone's looking at. But when that day came and when I got trained to become that number one instructor, it was definitely nerve-wracking in the beginning. Um, you think every little mistake you're going to do, everybody's like, oh, no. He doesn't know how to teach. But as, as you gain more experience, as more shifts come as your instructor number one, three times a week, it's great. And starting as the student and then working your way up to number two, number three, and number one, it was a journey seeing both sides. Like anything in life, the more repetitions you get at something, the better you get at it. And I imagine that's been the same. You, you alluded to that in your last answer. I'm also wondering how your students, how the children inspired confidence in you along that journey. You know, the students definitely help you learn. You're there to help the students learn, but the one thing is they also help you learn and you learn new things about yourself. Even if it's the smallest things like your knife skills, like you're chopping up and they're like, wow, you're so good at that. Like, I wanna have those skills one day. Feels great, it boosts your confidence, helps you become a better teacher. It's from knife skills all the way to the way you say things. And they're like, oh, that was really well said. Like, I understand what you mean now. I didn't understand earlier. So yeah, no, students, students definitely have a big part in helping you grow as a person. Charlie makes an excellent point that continues to come up when you speak to instructors at Little Kitchen Academy. The students teach us as much as we teach them. In fact, one of our episodes featured a student who has taught everyone at LKA some important lessons in equity and accessibility. Maya was born with a rare condition that limits some of her physical abilities, including speech, but that doesn't stop her from trying all kinds of new activities or from participating in a podcast. Maya and her mom, Lucia, gave me and our entire audience an education in what inclusion, equity, and change really look like in episode 25. Well, I mean, a very pertinent example to us is working with Little Kitchen Academy. This is really how I got talking with Brian and Felicity. They had actually done a really fantastic job of thinking through inclusion in how they set up their space. And I know Maya was really thrilled coming back from her first class there when she found that she was placed in a station that's built with accessibility in mind. The countertop was lower, the... Was the sink tired. was automatic, yeah. right? The tap, it. the tap, right? The tap. You just tap the faucet, yeah. and the water turns oh, on. Right, like we have here. Yeah, like we have at home. That's right. And so yeah. there was thought put into how to make this equitable for somebody with a physical disability. And so I have to say, like that is beyond what we experience in most settings, where somebody has had the foresight to include somebody with a physical difference. 
We did run into some issues around support. And I think the Montessori approach is fantastic. I really believe in the theory behind creating independence with children, the over-involvement of adults often hindering that. And in our situation, Maya benefits from having somebody with her that when she needs it, um, and very specifically asks for it, somebody's there to support her with things that make it an equitable experience for her. And that involvement needs to be from somebody who understands when she needs help and when she's just asking for help and doesn't really need it, right? There's a nuance there in terms of kids need to struggle, right, in order to learn. And I think that very much aligns with that Montessori approach. And then there's a disability piece, right? Anyways, so without getting, you know, too in the weeds, I had a concern about the kind of the barriers that were being put up about supporting Maya with an outside support person. And I emailed Brian and Felicity on a Saturday night and they responded almost immediately. I heard from them Sunday morning on Monday afternoon, we were on a Zoom call together. They brought that humility with them and were just curious. They were open to learning. They acknowledged their understanding changing as a result of our conversation and committed to taking action quickly, both in terms of our specific situation, because the classes were ongoing. We were, you know, midway between the first class and the second class. And so an action needed to be taken. And I think for them, they're setting a precedent across the company. And so I understand it has to be, you know, a mindfully made decision. And I think they mobilized quite quickly to get the consulting that they needed from their legal team and kind of reflect on what this means on their values. It was an exhausting experience for me because you're always kind of leading with these are the shortcomings, right? These are the challenges. And that's an exhausting place to revisit as a parent. But I think the result, again, we talk about that ripple effect, right? So we're one family and we've, I think, influenced policy across the company, which is global. And with individuals that have, you know, their hands in many pots and will take this learning, I think, to a variety of places. So that was a really positive experience and a positive outcome for us. Well, and to be specific to this situation, and please correct any detail that I may get wrong, but in general, no outside parents or support workers for any child come into the environment. And part of that is that Montessori approach led by a child. Children can do that. And that's the policy overall with Montessori-based learning and with Little Kitchen Academy that you don't need to have a parent there. Yes. We believe in your abilities more than perhaps the outside world believes in it. However, this was an exceptional case. And in this case with Maya, there is a need to have someone there supporting her. And you have influenced change so that in a case like Maya's, there can be someone who comes in and helps when it's necessary. Not when it's not. Yes. But when it absolutely is. Yeah. And I think that that's the difference. I think and I get that as a parent of another child who's typically developing that, you know, you want to be involved. And I 100% am on board with the overall philosophy of parents stay out. The kids have got this and the building of confidence that that creates for kids. And then when you have a kiddo that, you know, needs help with some self-care tasks, you know, it's not fair to ask Maya to just accept whoever happens to be there to help her with self-care tasks. And so it's not necessarily somebody coming in there and stirring for her or cutting for her. Those are things that Maya loved being able to do on her own and figure it out. And in fact, the person that came along a couple of times was like, she's got this, you know, kind of defending her space and autonomy over the process. And 
So I think that the balance of support needs to be really clear. And you're right. I think this was an exceptional situation. But I think with that blanket rule of no outside support created inequitable access for Maya because I wasn't comfortable sending her for three hours knowing that nobody was there for her for those specific needs. Even though from a participation perspective, I'm totally on board with her doing it all herself. Only through consultation and going through these types of conversations are we going to get to where there's a satisfactory result, I would think. And there is more inclusivity and there are programs in place and there's a better understanding, I suppose, more than anything of what it means to be in a place where you haven't been included. I just think that feeling I see when I look at your daughter and how capable she is, is the feeling that everybody should see. Yeah, I think I feel like everyone should see a powerful, a powerful thing in them. Everybody should see a powerful thing in them. Yeah. Like everybody should see something powerful in yeah, you yeah. or in themselves. In themselves. In themselves. And everybody else should see it too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely a connection between how you're perceived and how you view yourself. Yeah. And I think that that can be influenced in either direction. And then questioning, you know, when people see just the limitations, inviting them to take a broader view and see the ability. Some people do that much better than others. When you look in the mirror, do you see someone powerful? Yes. Yeah, I do. Good. I'm glad you do. Everybody should feel like that. I just wanted to pull up this document because I saw this quote that you gave a few years ago, Lucia, and I just wanted to get it right when I was reading it back. You said about your daughter, Maya, she's an incredible, incredible human being who has changed so many people's perceptions in life. How has Maya changed people's views? Oh, that's yeah. I didn't expect you to pull that out. Oh, I think Maya has helped people see the person behind the disability. One of the things about rare disease that you know, there's lots of really difficult things about not having all the data that you would have for something that's more common. But for my specific disorder, which is called ADCY5 related dyskinesia, she was the 12th known case worldwide. Extremely rare. I think underdiagnosed, but still extremely rare. And I think with that rare nature comes a bit of a blessing in that no one's pigeonholing you and what your future might look like. Pretty much with any diagnosis, you can't really know what the future holds. And there's lots and lots of examples of how people defy kind of scientific expectations. I think with rare disease, doctors will not even attempt to tell you what the future looks like. And in that lies some freedom in setting your own path. And, you know, we continue to be surprised, impressed, thrilled, relieved with all of the ways that Maya has persisted through the challenges that her disorder presents her and makes meaning of her life and of her involvement and her relationships. And I think being seen for those things is a real gift. One of the main goals at Little Kitchen Academy is to use cooking as a vehicle to help foster independence. The education the students receive is meant to act as a foundation of knowledge that empowers them to pursue their own ideas. That's when true innovation and creativity take place. Felix Bach is a perfect example of that philosophy. Armed with a degree in engineering and an expertise in bamboo, 
Felix turned what might seem like a far-fetched idea into a company called Chopped Value, a journey he discussed in episode nine of Meet Me in the Kitchen. So it quite literally started with, you know, not taking myself too serious and just jokingly telling my friends, look, if I ever run out of research material, you know, that I used to get from Asia to, to do my research out here at UBC, if I'm ever running out of it, I could just collect and recycle bamboo chopsticks and, and turn them into new material. So that was the half serious start of the company. But the serious start was really, I was, I was actually hired on the site by Metro Vancouver and FP Innovations, a local research institute, to do some studies on our construction waste in Vancouver housing market. And I think maybe, you know, if you're from here, Scott, you know about our our really rapidly changing Vancouver skyline and, and our neighborhoods are rapidly changing and what people build, how they build, and we are creating so much construction waste. And I realized my expertise was needed to turn this efficiency thinking that I developed in the bamboo industry into our local construction industry. And this is the connection. So the connection was really the efficiency thinking of our resources together with my knowledge in, in bamboo and thinking how can I prove my point that we can start a, a viable circular economy business with something small and humble like a chopstick and something that everyone understands, a relatable resource, a tangible resource, something that we touch and feel twice a week, three times a week as Vancouver writes during our takeouts. And that's how I started collecting chopsticks for a living. I also need to know how one goes from saying, look, I could always find product by collecting chopsticks and having that as a whimsical idea that you never do anything with, but as you said, you wanted to prove a point and you wanted to develop a circular economy using a renewable and reusable resource. So how do you go from that idea to what you've actually done and what Chop Value does today? Yeah, this is obviously an evolving story that I'm pretty happy about having this character, I guess, where if I say something out loud, I definitely want to follow through. And I think that moment, you know, when I was with my girlfriend and now wife at, at sushi dinner. And I, I set out this idea once out loud. I knew it really has to come to fruition. And, and I started the next day because I think too many people, you know, I still meet them every single day where they're saying, oh, I had this idea before. But I think the crucial thing is how do you use your background, your experience, your know-how how do you use this to actually turn an idea into real, maybe even commercially viable project later on a company and today, you know, a global organization? And that took a lot of humbling moments and humbling experiences because you, you start from zero again, right? I left a really good career uh, in, in academia and industry. I had an existing engineering company with far less risk and less staff to start from zero again, because I really, really want to show everyone to make this work, how we can prove out this sustainable circular story. So tell me what happens with the chopsticks you collect and where they go and where we see them now. Yeah. So you have to imagine when I had the idea, it is one of these napkin ideas. You know, you're trying to wrap your head around how much of this crazy stuff is actually out here. Like how big is that resource stream that we are definitely neglecting and, and totally thinking it's too small to care about. So I came up with around an estimate that we throw out 100,000 chopsticks per day in Vancouver alone. So that was the starting point. You know, I thought, okay, if I can collect 10% of that, you know, 10,000 chopsticks per day, and um, I'm going to call it 
maybe 70 to 100,000 a week. Let's model this little idea that way. So today I'm proud that we are collecting around 350,000 chopsticks per week in Vancouver alone. So we are going around from restaurant to restaurant and our malls and restaurant partners, hotel partners, business partners, and we're collecting that, that resource that we call urban harvesting. And it goes to our local chop value microfactory. That microfactory is designed you know, to fit into a standard warehouse space in North American warehouse, you know, two and a half thousand, three thousand square feet big. And then it actually gets transformed in a technology that we developed through a screening process, drying a water-based resin from the automotive industry. And then it gets highly densified into a new engineering material. And that new engineering material can then be used as a replacement for solid timber. Now, you know, the questions that usually come, could you, could you build houses out of it or could you make structural beams out of it? The answer is, you know, on paper, yes, from a performance perspective, but we choose to make products for everyone's daily use so that you can touch and feel and, and tell the story of what hundreds or thousands of chopsticks have been turned into, you know, restaurant tables, desks home decor products, or, you know, this beautiful community table that we're making for Little Kitchen Academy, for example, for all the little kids to eat on and play on. In every Little Kitchen Academy, there is a community table. And that community table is made by Chop Value, and it's made out of recycled chopsticks. How does that make you feel that that's where these little humans, and in some cases, teenagers, but that's where they gather at the end of every session at Little Kitchen Academy? You know, this is, it's a very proud feeling. Because, you know, knowing that we are part of Little Kitchen Academy's brand that really spreads their positive development across the world in such a transparent way, that really makes me proud, almost like very, very happy. Because what these kids are doing is they ask questions about something they see right in front of them and that they can feel and see. You know, it's not an app on their phone or another school book to read. It's a table. It's literally a piece of furniture that they usually would just walk by. They would probably not have an appreciation for the design, but because it's made out of, I think, 33,246 chopsticks, don't quote me on that number, please, but I think it's definitely more than 33,000 chopsticks that community table is made of. You know, every educator and or every little kitchen chef now has an opportunity to tell one story. And, and that story could be so different. Like one day that story could be, maybe my chopsticks are in that table because I live in that neighborhood where this table was made. Or that story could be, I know someone who works at the Chop Valley Microfactory in my city and they made that table. Or the story could be, today is the first time I understood what circular economy means. So we don't have to throw out these little sticks. I know now if I put them into the Chop Valley bin, they're being turned into community tables for the little kitchen. There's so many cool stories that you can imagine these kids picking up on, you know, depending on the age, depending on the interest, that... Yeah, I feel kind of responsible now to really do a good job, you know, as, as a partner to LKA. You were very close on the chopsticks. 33,436 is the number. You were only off by a couple hundred. But to be fair, I wrote it down. You have to do this all the time and you have many other products that you have to configure. Yeah, you know, and I try to be really accurate when it comes to numbers because I think it's really important. It's, it's part of our traceability story. What I mean by traceability is I, I think in the rarest cases today, do we actually know where our products are coming from? You know, for instance, the microphone that we are sitting in front of, like, you know, there's a high likelihood this is being produced somewhere 
entirely different than the world that, that we assume it is produced. And 10 other components are shipped before it gets packaged and arrives on our desk that we can now speak into. I want to change that with the Chabali products. I want to make sure that we know exactly how many chopsticks were collected, where, by whom, and who produced it before it ended up in this really, really beautiful, appreciative, engineered product in its new use. That idea that Felix talked about, wanting to know where our products come from, is hopefully becoming more and more relevant when it comes to food. It's part of the education that students at Little Kitchen Academy are getting during their classes, and it's an integral component to what Ricky Yada is trying to do at the university level. Ricky is the Dean of the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And as he explained last year in Episode 8, far too many people have lost their connection to the food they're consuming. I think, Scott, you know, it's probably a reflection of the time where we live in a society or a period of time where time is the most valuable non-renewable resource. And so when we come back and have dinner or we're out for dinner, I don't think we really appreciate all the nuances of the foods that we eat. You know, we sit down at a table, we consume it, and we think not too much about where that food came from. So I think it's a time factor and it's a reflection of the fact that students, parents, you know, aren't exposed to days gone by where it really was an agriculturally based society. And so we don't see that element, Scott. When you see your students learn more about the food industry and where this food that we consume on a daily basis comes from, what's the light bulb that seems to go on for them and how do they alter? I know you can't speak for all of them, but just in general, how do they alter the way that they view the industry and perhaps eating in general? Well, I think, you know, what that light bulb moment is, is the application of the science and technology that we teach them at universities, colleges, high schools, hopefully at elementary schools, at Little Kitchen Academy, of how do you translate that science and that technology into practical applications? And I think that is the light bulb moment. They go, aha, oh, this is why it's important to understand how food spoils and what are some of the ways that we can prevent food spoilage or quality deterioration. It's interesting you talk about science and technology as it applies to the food industry because there is a push and pull that goes on, I think, in general society when talking about that, Ricky, organic versus not organic or natural versus using enhancers as far as growing food and the way that it is preserved. How do you balance that in your industry with the general views that seem to be in the population? Well, I think, Scott, the way we deal with that is we give our students a sound background in the fundamentals and principles around, you know, some of the reactions that go on with food, some of the preservative methods, and we let them make a choice. And I think that's the critical thing. I think it's very dangerous to go down the path of being an advocate for one or the other. And our whole role at universities and educational institutions is to give students a good science and technology basis 
and for them to make the choice of whether or not they're going to actually adopt that science or the technology. But it's all around, you know, science-based, technology-based decision-making. Choice is a really good place for us to dive into your affiliation with Little Kitchen Academy and even how you became aware of it. You mentioned it before. What was your first exposure, Ricky, to Little Kitchen Academy? So, Scott, it's interesting because we live in a place in Vancouver near False Creek or Granville Island. And on my way to work, I would come up 10th Avenue and there was this little storefront and it was called Little Kitchen Academy. And I was always kind of curious, what is that? And I guess our connect was when Brian and Felicity reached out to me looking for a place where they could source some of their starting material. And they knew that in land and food systems, we have affiliated a farm, which is right on campus. And it's a certified organic farm. And they were passionate about getting good quality food as a starting base for the students to use in the development of recipes. So they reached out and I had a wonderful first conversation with Brian and Felicity. And they said, man, we need to partner. And that's how it started. So one of those kind of serendipitous kind of events. So, you know, a lot of good things happen through serendipity. And I think this is one of those good things. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And I'm wondering, as somebody who has been exposed to probably every arm of the food industry, what it was that Brian and Felicity said that resonated with you and your approach to food, sustainability, the whole gamut. Well, I think the thing that really resonated with me was their discussion around food literacy. Understanding, as I said in the past, where our food comes from. And they were also very passionate and still are very passionate about having children and young adults understand the importance of ingredients and the nutritional value of those ingredients as they develop a recipe. And probably something that we haven't talked about a lot, but I think they really do appreciate and understand that food could be used as a means for preventative health care by eating healthy food, good quality food, maybe there's a chance for us to avoid some of those chronic diseases that are so high in the minds of society, you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes, some of those issues. There's so much to get into from that answer alone, but I want to go back to the term itself, food literacy, Ricky, because that can mean a lot of different things. That can mean where your food comes from. It can mean understanding what your food is composed of down at a molecular level. It can have to do with sustainability. In practical terms, what does the concept of food literacy mean to you? You know, Scott, I think it's all of the above. Really, you know, understanding where our food comes from. And as I talked about, you know, understanding that frozen strawberries started in a field in Richmond and then were converted to frozen strawberries, I think Brian and Felicity understand that very, very well. But, you know, on top of that, as I said before, their whole appreciation of the nutritive value of good quality food and how developing recipes can be fun. And I think this is the thing that really is the unique aspect of Little Kitchen Academy. 
understanding food literacy and making it fun. It's a simple truth and one we all agree with. When learning is fun, students learn more, retain more, and crave more knowledge. But too often, the fun of learning disappears as we get older, and in many cases, it's replaced with pressure. It's one of the reasons I enjoyed speaking with Pam Daniels in episode 30. Pam is a professor of design at Northwestern University, and she personally designed the visual measuring cups used by Little Kitchen Academy. It's a perfect fit because just like LKA, Pam is doing everything she can to empower others by creating an environment that is both fun and fruitful. I think that all of us have, you know, a fear of judgment, perhaps, or not all of us really love running headfirst into the unknown. (laughs) I have learned through, mostly through my improv coaches, that I love being knocked out of my comfort zone. I really like a challenge and I am not afraid to look foolish because I'm pretty confident in my ability to recover from those things. Again, probably thanks to my upbringing. I mean, nobody likes failure. I know it's kind of in vogue to be like, oh, failure is so important. Failure stinks. I mean, nobody likes failing. But the more you learn to sort of embrace failure as sort of inevitable if you're trying a lot, like you're going to miss shots you take. You just are. Even the best athletes miss shots. (laughs) World-class athletes miss shots. So there will be missed shots. But Not daring to try, to me, is a pain worse than failure. And so I very much believe in silencing that inner critic that says, oh, it can't, it won't, but how... I think a lot of times, and I know this is a podcast and not something people will be able to see my face, but a lot of times when you put an idea out there, other people will respond and like their forehead will sort of narrow. They'll get these little creases. And they'll sort of like drill in like, well, how are you going to do that? And what's the whatever? And they're just sort of like almost needling the idea. And I think that there's a lot more room in the world for people who say, oh, that sounds really interesting. Tell me more about that. That's a question that goes wide. That's a question that doesn't shut down the idea. And so when I lead design and innovation workshops, which I do on occasion for select clients, Some people will ask, how do I become a better collaborator? And I'll often say, well, the first thing you can do is learn to be a better collaborator with yourself. And so when you have an idea, even just in your head, if the first thing that happens is, well, no, but you kind of like won't even let your idea have the full light of day in your own head. Ooh, try to just let your ideas breathe a little bit. And then certainly when you're a community with other people and other people are sharing ideas, just nod and smile and say, interesting, tell me more. (laughs) instead of those winnowing questions that kind of eliminate possibilities. Because of course you don't have all the how and what and what. It's just a new idea. It's like a precious little newborn idea and you have to be very gentle with it. What have you witnessed? I know there isn't one where you live right now, but there will be in the very near future. But what have you witnessed just through the videos and following along with Little Kitchen Academy in this journey? Oh, it's so exciting to see Little Kitchen Academy have grown from the seed of an idea into many locations. I don't know how many Little Kitchen Academies there are as of today, but it's many. And when I see the images on social media of kids experiencing joy in a learning environment, it just thrills me. There was a little boy doing a robot dance in class the other day, and that's celebrated. It's not like, get back to your station. 
or just the intense concentration. You know, Maria Montessori really believed that the educator's job was not to interrupt concentration, not to even command their attention all the time, but to essentially create a well-curated, carefully prepared environment and then leave the students alone in a beautiful, like supportive way, but not interrupting that. And I, I love seeing that. You witness it all the time through their concentration, through their joy, and then their pride at what they can make. Thrilling. Very well said. And as you just referred to, Little Kitchen Academy is Montessori inspired. One of the things Felicity told me is that you actually use the Montessori method approach in some of your university courses. How does that manifest itself in those settings? I do use Montessori methods at a university. It was actually the last work Maria Montessori was doing was how her methods would be applied to later stage learners, high school and college. And then, you know, she passed away. But the way that it plays out in my classrooms is the classroom is a carefully prepared environment. So in most studio settings where I teach, the tables are elevated, so they're higher. And that is very much so that the students and I are eye to eye, that I'm not standing over them really don't like standing over students because equality is important in a classroom setting. I also kick off classes saying this might not be like your other classes because I don't have the answers. The answers are something we create and discover together. The classrooms all have prototyping materials in them. So there are things in the room to help you make your ideas manifest. You don't just stay in your head and you don't even just stick with a pen. You're able to sort of build your ideas and in fact, required to build your ideas. Sometimes we kick off class one with what we call a make storm and I'll put a few prompts on the board and say, pick one of these questions that sparks interest to you and just build your first answer to it. And this, you know, for a Northwestern University student sparks a little bit of fear <laughs> because they're good at school. <laughs> they're good at the more traditional ways of demonstrating learning. But for some of them, this is quite scary to be in a setting like this. So another part of the classroom is sort of making it a safe enough space that you feel free to take risks, that you're able to sort of be supported by your peers, be supported by your teacher, any design coaches that might be in the room, that it's a non-competitive environment that it's an environment where we're all seeking to imagine and create together. And it's thrilling to see in university students as much as it is for the kids I see at Little Kitchen Academy, as much as it is for corporate clients. I mean, seeing people wake up and realize that they can imagine and create things together is, like I said, my life's work. It's a really refreshing thing to hear, quite frankly, because when you mention a prestigious university like Northwestern, that does conjure up the idea of, serious academic studies. And I do believe in the traditional education system, the further we go along, especially for those who are high achievers in those traditional metrics, school gets pretty serious and you lose some of the fun of learning. But it sounds to me like you are determined to make sure that this is enjoyable and the students know this is a choice and it should be fun. Yes. Yes. And actually, Einstein's called play the highest form of research. So, you know, there's not an inverse correlation between joy and productivity, which I like to remind students, it is okay to enjoy what you're doing, to be happy doing it. And it can also be tremendously useful. It doesn't mean it's frivolous. It doesn't mean it's a waste of time. And isn't actually that what we all want is a world where you're proud of what you're doing, you're loving what you're doing, you're engaging beautifully with each other, and things are getting better and different. That's the world I want to live in. So I strive within the power that I have to create classrooms where it feels like that. 
As you've heard throughout this episode, the classroom isn't confined to those four walls with rows full of desks at your local school. It can be any setting where learning takes place if you simply broaden your view. That's exactly what Jane Garapick did when it came time for her children to get an education. Though she and her husband had always planned to put their kids in the traditional school system, they realized that homeschooling was the best fit for their family. That didn't mean learning in isolation. It meant finding environments that would enhance the learning process. And as Jane described in episode 29, Little Kitchen Academy does that, and then some. It's a real experience, and from what I have seen, they don't let us in there, so, you know, I'm not privy to that. But from what I understand, I mean, it's real. You know, they ask questions, there's a freedom, and there's the freedom to develop the confidence. You know, my daughter, she doesn't need much help. She pretty much just rocks this thing. My son, he's asking questions like all the time. He's still there right with Peter, you know, right at the front. And, you know, their last session when they finished, Peter, at the end, because I guess a lot of them aren't coming back for the summer, they're taking a summer break. So at the end, Peter did this really special, special thing. He was letting them out and he was talking to my son and telling him how he'd just seen him grow and improve. And I could just see my son just beaming because it's such a confidence boost to have this chef who makes everything look so easy. Tell him, I see this in you. And so I cannot recommend this experience enough. I actually relay these stories to everybody because I can't stop talking about it because what we have learned is the value of bringing in mentors and the value value of bringing in other people. You don't have to pay for everybody if you, you know, if there's prohibitive thing with finances. It's just finding people who have the talent, who have the ability. And I think the biggest thing is have the ability to see your kids and have the ability to see them in such a way that they can see themselves reflected back through your eyes and through the lens that you look through. And there is something so beautiful for a child to have someone who recognizes their ability, even if they feel like it's their weakness or that something where they're not experienced enough or they have, you know, whatever their disability might be or whatever their shortcoming is or whatever. You know, there is something so special and so affirming, life affirming, not just for now, but life affirming that someone saw them. And you know how we talk about how, you know, a very special teacher can make all the difference. This is the same type of thing. An experience like this, where it's something that's out of their comfort zone with cooking, with nutrition, with selecting foods, with having the agency to make your own choices, to not just be told to do something, but to have someone come alongside you and support you in doing that and do it in such a way that you feel empowered. That is an incredible, incredible thing to give to a child at any age. And as teens, you know, I talked to Felicity about this, as teens are getting ready to be independent and to go out into the world. I mean, to have that is just, I mean, it's incredible to have that. My husband went to college not ever eating healthy. He grew up not eating with, you know, he didn't know anything. And he had a roommate who looked at him and was like, dude, what are you eating? You can't eat that crap. And that was his first experience with healthy foods. And when I hear that, I'm just like, oh my goodness, I took it for granted. I thought, you know, that most people come from these, you know, families and we learn this stuff and we do it. But even in my own home, right, hearing this story from my husband, to be able to give this gift to my son through the little kitchen and my daughter just, you know, reinforces, okay, so mom and dad do know something about what they're doing. But to hear it from someone who isn't the parent 
is just incredible. So I can't say enough. And that's why I was so excited to talk about this. And I just love the fact that no one is excluded from this experience. No one is excluded from any of this, no matter what shortcoming they might have, no matter what neurodivergency they might have, it just whatever it is. I just love how the Little Kitchen and Peter and whoever else is involved in there, they just embrace everyone and see them with that vision with that lens that a child feels. And again, there are no stupid questions. He actually makes everyone feel like they're good questions to ask. He makes everyone feel like ask any question. All the questions are valid and I'll answer them. And he doesn't talk down to you. I mean, you know, the way my son has described this and I've met Peter, so I get it. But it's just there's no question that isn't a good question because it's a child asking it or a teen, you know, in my case. And it's exactly that those moments of just, you know, you can't even know what they're going to be as a parent. And for this one, it was the knife, cutting with a knife properly so that you don't cut yourself. And I will say one interesting thing about the knives. The safety of that, I really can't stress enough because there can also be like intergenerational trauma to do with things like the knife. Because what really occurred to me as my son came home talking about the knives, I remember my dad passing along a story that his mom, my grandmother, always got weak in the knees when she was cutting with the knives. And then my dad had told me that he got weak in the knees. And I started realizing, wait, wait a second. I get that too. Like there's something about that. And all of a sudden it hit me because I haven't thought about this in years because I haven't had it really. But every once in a while, if there's certain circumstances, I'll feel this like weak in the knees. And it's like a traumatic experience response. I think that you are absorbing what someone had and it's become this intergenerational trauma experience that's been passed along. And so hearing my son talk about it, I realized we broke the cycle. There's nothing. He doesn't have this visceral response in the body because he's learning about this from someone who isn't also passing along the story of, oh, you know, I get this. Whereas a lot of times as parents, we don't know. We don't realize that we pass something along. I'm sure my grandmother didn't mean to pass this along to her son, my dad, and I'm sure my dad didn't mean to pass it along. So there's these little things. And because I have a background in psychology, in case you can't tell. So I'm always looking for things like this. And so to be able to to just stumble on these little things where I'm like, I thought it was just a cooking school, cooking class or a teen night, a social event where they got to cook. And all of these little things started piecing together that by the time I was talking to Felicity about this, I was telling her about all this because I'm like, there are so many psychological aspects that you've got covered. And I really hope you realize this because you are not just teaching cooking and you are not just teaching a skill of how to cook. You are teaching stuff that is just surpassing like barriers that are subconscious conscious that no one even realizes. From homeschooling to a more traditional approach, Steve Anthony is the head of school at Vancouver's West Point Gray Academy, where students already have a diverse set of electives at their disposal. But like Jane, Steve sees immense value in what Little Kitchen Academy offers children from as young as three to as old as 18. It's why he proudly supports the partnership his school has formed with LKA. And why, as he expanded on in episode 13, he would recommend other schools do the same. As an educator, we're constantly looking for those experiential opportunities for our students, those lesson plans that really have an impact. Those experiences that when the students go home and and sitting around the dinner table at night and someone in their family says, what did you do at school today? And rather than getting the response, nothing, or what was your favorite part of school being recess or lunch? 
that they have this sort of an experience and they go home and say, I had an opportunity to do this. Also as an educator, baked right into, and that pun was not intended, but I will claim it, baked right into our own school strategic plan is to seek out opportunities to look for personalized learning for the students, those things that are experiential, those things that are relevant, and those things that are practical. So across the spectrum of junior kindergarten all the way to grade 12 at our school, I see so many places where what Little Kitchen can offer to our students through the lens of an educator as being absolutely optimal. You know, as a, as a parent, it's an interesting experience to watch my wife, Charlotte, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and whether it's at home or whether it's making it for the boys to take to school, there's that functional piece of meals and cooking at the home. And then when you get to a place with your own children that they want to play a part in that, they want to take responsibility, they want to have their own sense of agency, they've got something that they've learned, they're proud of it, they want to share it, they want to cook at home. And then you see that happening, and then they start to develop an appreciation for the different types of tastes and foods. As a parent, that's pretty exciting. Then to see, you know, my son say, I'd like to be a part of that on the other side of the counter. And I'd like to be in there actually teaching and working with the students on a regular basis. So we've got three boys, Miles, Charlie, and Sam. And when Charlie, our middle son, is home from university, he's been working as a chef at Little Kitchen Academy. And he'll go in and do sometimes one four-hour shift or two back-to-back four-hour shifts. He'll teach children as young as three years of age, and then all the way up to the teen programs. And then, of course, not only will he bring the food home, but he'll bring the stories home of what that experience was like. So I just think that's another wonderful thing for us to experience as parents. I do want to follow up on what you just said, and I want to come back to the parental piece later in this conversation. But as far as the education piece, there's been a partnership in place between your school, West Point Gray Academy, and Little Kitchen Academy for a number of years. What do you believe that partnership has done for the students of your school? And again, Scott, I think our responsibility as educators is to always keep our eyes and our ears open for those things that can exist that can enrich the student experience at our school. There's only so much that we can accomplish in a day between sort of an 8 a.m. or even a 7 a.m. soccer practice or basketball practice and then through the curriculum that we cover in the day and then maybe something after school. But the well-rounded student needs to have these other influences in their lives. And we can't always provide that at the school. We don't have the facilities. We don't always have the time and the schedule, and we don't always have the expertise. So when you're very intentional about creating a strategic plan for your school, you think about, as I noted earlier, where are those personalized learning experiential opportunities? Where are there chances that we can strengthen our relationships with community partners and people in the neighborhood to not just be a school that is on its own in its campus, but rather it can be integrated into the fabric of the local neighborhood? Where can we focus on personal well-being? Where can we guide our students to make those healthy decisions? And sometimes when they hear it from somebody else, especially if they're involved in it actively, and it's not the Charlie Brown teacher, wah, 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 that they hear from us on a regular basis, we know that that's going to have a sticky factor as well, that there's going to be a residue to that. So when we realize there are things we would like to achieve as a school, but we weren't able to do all of it in the school day, and then we saw the evolution and the creation of Little Kitchen Academy, and thank goodness it was really just a few blocks up the road, we realized there was this synchronicity that was going to happen. There was a synergy that was going to happen. And connecting with them and and being sort of one of the first community partners and saying, we would love our students to be a part of this. How can we structure that? How can we make that happen? And then sitting down with our team at the school that's responsible for electives and courses and scheduling and seeing a way to make that work. 
And it's been brilliant. It's been a number of years now, and it has been absolutely brilliant time and time again. This might be oversimplifying it, but the way you describe education, it sounds to me like your general philosophy is that there's only so much theory can do. There has to be a practical element to it, and that you are trying to incorporate that more into the traditional education system than we've seen in the past, the one you and I grew up with. That's right. And I think there's an old adage, and now that I'm on a podcast, I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong, but it's that concept of, you know, you can speak to me or you can tell me and I'll probably forget it. You can involve me in it or explain it to me and perhaps I'll remember it. But if you actually have me doing it, then I'm going to understand it. And I think when we can find those opportunities in our classrooms rather than just always being seated in rows and columns and having you know, a shift to the Socratic method where we can have more people around the table interacting and being interactive in those experiences, they're really going to take something away from that. They are going to have that sense of personal investment and agency and, you know, a pride in what it is that they're creating and it's going to stick to them. As I mentioned throughout this compilation, each of the guests you've just heard has a full-length episode that can be found in what is quickly becoming an extensive Meet Me in the Kitchen catalog. There are a lot of simple ways to support this podcast, so please subscribe, rate, review, and recommend. Thanks for listening, and I hope the back-to-school experience is a great one for the children in your life, and one that's enhanced by experiencing the magic they'll find at Little Kitchen Academy. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 